you would go and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we'll be continuing in our study of Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. As we begin our time, as is tradition, if you would please stand actually as we read from our text this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Again, a passage we've been reading every week for the last month or so. Begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's open our time in prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity that you have set before us, God. Indeed, we are incredibly grateful for the opportunity to sing songs of praise to you. We are humbled for we recognize that we are sinners deserving only your wrath. And yet you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. And so, God, might our time this morning be an act of worship before you, an act of thankfulness to your grace for the blessings that you bestow upon us. And as we consider these words of Christ yet again in his Sermon on the Mount, God, might this time be a time in which we are further humbled, but also a time in which we are further reminded of how significant, how incredible, how awe-inspiring your love is for us, God. And might we go from this place striving to be the people you've called us to be, by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. God, for those who are here this morning who do not yet know you, God, I pray that you use our time today to bring them to a saving faith in you. Speak through us this morning, we pray. Remove all distractions from our minds, we pray. All according to your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Many of you are probably familiar with the somewhat childhood adage of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will what? Will never hurt me, right? How many of you have heard this? Many of us. Probably all of us have heard this. It's a saying that many of us have heard countless times from the time of our childhood. And even if you're not extremely familiar with it, you understand the basic point behind it, right? It is the idea that we ought not let the words of others get under our skin because ultimately those words shouldn't mean that much to us. They they shouldn't cause that much harm. And there is a certain amount of truth behind the statement. We we should not be controlled by the opinions of others. We should not be controlled by by criticism. But as most of us have experienced, that saying is somewhat of a lie, isn't it? It is definitely a lie to claim that, that words cannot actually hurt us, that words can do no damage. Because all of us have experienced how painful... Um, unfair criticism can be in our lives, especially when it comes from, from a loved one, when it comes against us, when we really think we're doing a good job, we really think we're doing a righteous deed. And in that moment, many times growing up, we understand that that childhood saying just isn't all that accurate. 
And it's not all that helpful just to continually insist on the belief that, that words shouldn't hurt you and therefore you need to just pick yourself up, get over it, and move on. Because in essence, that's, that's the encouragement that that saying adds. Ultimately, we continue to use that saying. Right? We continue to use it because we, we still believe that we ought not let the words of others control us. But as we grow older, we understand we need a bit more wisdom than that. Having said that, however, when we come to the words of Jesus Christ, really in verses 1 through 12 of, of Matthew 5, but particularly in verses 10 through 12, we come to a, a similarly challenging command. We come to a phrase that at, at first glance, at face value, seems to be infinitely more simplistic than that famous adage of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never, will, will never hurt me. We see something that is spoken by Christ that not only seems unreasonable, but we, feel, we find a command that, if we're not careful, can feel overly burdensome and indeed impossible to, to carry on a daily basis. For as Jesus finishes up the Beatitudes, and as we finish the Beatitudes today, Jesus isn't just speaking of criticism, but, but he speaks of outright persecution. As we saw a moment ago, and as we'll see more this morning, he, he speaks of people saying evil and wicked things about you. He speaks of, of an activity that not is only found in words, but in actions of, of physical lashing out at believers. And yet, despite the, the weight and the reality of the struggle that persecution brings, the response that Jesus commands of every believer isn't just pick yourself up and move on, it's, it's rejoice. It's listen to that rebuke, receive that, that harsh treatment, and rejoice. Be glad. And if that saying were to be left there, these words of Jesus, much like so many of the Beatitudes, would be an unbearable command. It would be far too much weight for us to carry. And yet, as we will see this morning, as we unpack the words of Christ, hopefully we see that this isn't just some simplistic adage that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. This isn't some simple saying we repeat over and over. These are genuine words of encouragement that while... They produce an initial amount of weight upon our shoulders. Ultimately, they are meant to also bring about the greatest word of encouragement we could possibly receive, an encouragement that is so amazing that that weight of persecution, that weight of expectation in our response is ultimately lifted, and this command that initially feels impossible to follow is a command that all of us can live out on a daily basis by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. As we unpack these words this morning then, we will begin by those weighty matters. We will begin with this expectation to suffer for Christ. We'll then talk about how we're commanded to respond like Christ, but then understand how we are to maintain this focus. As we begin then, we begin with somewhat of a review. In verses 10 and 11, where we are told in essence that we must expect to suffer for Christ. Again, picking up the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 and into the beginning of verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Eric talk a great deal about persecution. We talk a great deal about the reality of this persecution. And this word of persecution in the Beatitudes is, of course, not the only place where Jesus promises harsh treatment of believers. Even more famously than these Beatitudes, you have the promise of Christ over in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 15, 
Jesus offers a similar promise regarding the suffering of the believer. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. There, Jesus, again speaking to his disciples, offers these words, not necessarily of comfort, but of a promise. John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Throughout his ministry, in passages like John 15, as well as in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, there is a clear promise and guarantee that you as a believer, that we as believers, have this assumed suffering that will enter into our lives. People will hate us and attack us and reject us purely because we are Christians. Eric last week talked about one of the reasons why this happens, and one of those reasons is related to the character of the Christian. If you as a believer, as you are commanded to, are are pursuing the lifestyle that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5, you will look different. This doesn't require a great deal of experience to understand this, for back in Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus talks about being gentle, as he talks about being humble, as he talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness and maintaining purity, he speaks of things that are never a natural part of any society. It was not normal in Jesus' day for people to be pure, for people to be humble, and it is no more normal today in our own culture. People just are not that humble, typically speaking. And even though this character might be initially attractive, that is to say a lot of people might have a certain amount of respect for you if you're trying to be pure, if you're trying to maintain righteousness, a lot more other people will, will assume something a bit more sinister in your actions, won't they? A lot of people in our culture, when they see someone striving to be humble or they see someone striving to maintain a pure life, they will assume there's something else going on under the surface. They'll say things like, oh, well, we'll see what happens in another five months. Right? Well, there's no way anyone's that good. We'll see. They'll fall apart soon enough. As soon as criticism comes, they'll buckle like everyone else. And indeed, this is the typical approach a lot of people have when they observe a righteous individual, when they observe personal purity. They assume that, that it's all a facade, it's fake. And when people assume you're being fake, they will then mock you, they will reject you, they will treat you as if you are somehow trying to establish yourself as self-righteous. And so, purely from the, from the result of, of striving to maintain a pure character, Christians will receive persecution. Of course, we understand that our persecution is not given purely as a result of our character, is it? Because still, even in the midst of our our character, there will be some people who will be fine with that. There will be many people who will seem to to hold a genuine amount of respect for you for maintaining purity, for maintaining humility, and they'll speak highly of you, but but something will change when you refuse to let your your character stand as your only as the only characteristic of your Christianity, what changes, of course, is when the Christian opens his mouth and speaks the gospel. And ultimately, we find that it's not just our character, but really it's our message as Christians that bring persecution onto ourselves, isn't it? This has been true from the Old Testament forward. The moment the people of God ever open their mouths and speak of God's holiness, and more particularly speak of man's sinfulness, the response is persecution. You see this pretty much in the life of every single prophet in the Old Testament. Men who were great righteous figures. 
people who represented the law of God as best they could, and yet the moment they spoke of judgment against Israel, most of the Israelites rejected them. You see this in the book of Jeremiah, for instance, in Jeremiah chapter 26, in response to Jeremiah's ongoing message of rebuke and the oncoming wrath of God, you find this response of the people in Jeremiah 26 verse 11. The priests, the prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people saying, a death sentence for this man, speaking of Jeremiah, a death sentence for this man, for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard in your hearing. How dare Jeremiah speak against us? How dare this righteous man claim we are sinful and claim we need to repent? He ought to be judged. He ought to be cast out. These, again, were the people of God claiming that Jeremiah deserved this. They simply could not stand his message. The same response and rebuke is seen in response to so many other prophets in the Old Testament. And when we come to the New Testament, nothing changes. I think one of the most powerful examples you have of of someone who from the outside... uh, appeared to be pure, and someone who was initially loved yet then hated as a result of their message is the person of Stephen. If you would turn with me over to the book of Acts, you see what happens to Stephen when he has the audacity to open his mouth and speak. Stephen is someone who does not have a great deal of detail written of him prior to his faith, but in Acts chapter 6 and 7, he becomes a person of somewhat prominence, for he's chosen to serve within the church. And he then becomes the first martyr of the Christian church. But in the midst of his service, in the midst of his preaching, Stephen is brought before the council, again, a group of, priests, a group of, of Jewish leaders. And listen to the way that, that Luke describes Stephen's initial appearance before that council. In Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, but through 15, we read, They put forward false witnesses who said, This man, Stephen, incessantly speaks against the holy place and law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. In this initial appearance, when when people are, are accusing Stephen of wrongdoing, those who are hearing this accusation look at Stephen and initially they view him as angelic. Stephen, in that initial moment, appears to be entirely innocent and at this point in time has apparently given this council no reason to rebuke him whatsoever. Instead, he sits there as really this perfectly attractive and character individual who deserves no punishment. And yet, immediately following this impression in which they view him as as angelic, in chapter 7, verse 2, Stephen is given a chance to defend himself. And Stephen opens his mouth, and what happens? What does Stephen declare? He declares the gospel. In a very similar manner to Jeremiah and so many other Old Testament prophets, Stephen walks this Jewish council through Israel's history. Stephen explains to them and depicts to them God's righteousness and and God's goodness shown to Israel despite Israel's past sin. And he walks them up to the point to where he declares that Jesus Christ, the one who the Jews had crucified, was indeed actually the Messiah. And that while some of the things that were being said against Stephen were untrue, ultimately his message that was so offensive was entirely accurate. He was declaring that Jesus was the Son of God, that if the council did not repent, they too would be judged, they too would undergo the wrath of God. And upon uttering this message, what does the council do to Stephen? They drag him out of the city and they murder him. A man who just moments before is seen in their eyes as angelic is is satanic. 
Right? He's the, the most evil thing, the most despicable thing they could possibly view. And so they decide that the only reasonable response is to murder this individual. The point in all of this then is, is regardless of, of where you are as a believer, regardless of how attractive your character is, the moment someone really starts watching you and the moment you speak of Christ, you will be marked as, as significantly different. You will be marked as, as really weird and undesirable, unattractive. Paul describes the gospel that we preach in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as something that is, that is foolishness. It is, it is utter folly and utter offensive to everyone who doesn't believe it. In other passages, our service as Christians is described as, as the stench of death in the nostrils of those who reject it. Regardless of how good we might try to be, and regardless, as, uh, regardless of how attractive we might strive to, to be as Christians, the reality is, the Bible clearly presents us with, with the belief that the gospel has always been and always will be hideous in the eyes of the world around us. It will always be offensive. For while we speak of it as the love of God, the world hears nothing but the judgment of God and the wrath of God and the sinfulness of man. And so it is only natural then that that world will reject it and they will reject the individual who speaks it. And all this, the constant promise to every believer then, is if you are actually living out a Christian life, if you are actually striving to live out your life in obedience to Christ, the world's going to hate you in the same way that it hated Christ. The world's going to mock you in the same way that it mocked Paul. And even if the world doesn't kill you like it killed Stephen, the world will attack you. And as Eric talked about last week, this attack, this reality, is indeed genuine suffering. There is a real genuine cost. The suffering that is promised is not necessarily easy to undergo. When Paul describes his suffering in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he speaks of this reality of, of the fact that his struggles have been real, that they are difficult to, to, to experience. In that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we get a taste of, of some of those struggles that, that Paul has undergone as a result of his faith. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, beginning in verse really 20, 20, 24, Paul says, Five times I received from Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. He goes on and describes the fact that he's been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers of false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And, and while some of these, these sufferings, of course, are just a natural part of living in a fallen world, right? I mean, he was, in ship, he was shipwrecked, he was going through a number of these things. Many of these sufferings were a direct result of his faith. Paul would not have been beaten if he just kept his mouth shut. Paul would not have been lashed by the Jews if he hadn't converted to Christianity. Paul wouldn't have been imprisoned by the Romans if he had just stopped talking about the fact that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the true king. But of course, Paul understands he can't keep his mouth shut. That is not a choice he has to make. And so because he continues to live the way he did, he suffers greatly. And again, you read through those many examples throughout the Old and New Testament, you understand it's not just these great apostles like Paul who struggled. It's not just prophets in the Old Testament who suffered. It's, it's anyone and everyone who strives to honor God. 
It's the average individual who opens their mouth up and preaches the gospel that is persecuted. Later on in church history, it's the average individual, the average Christian that is fired from their work that loses family relationships just because, again, they they continue to speak the gospel. As believers today, we must be careful in, in discussing honestly this reality of suffering. We must be careful in understanding that the suffering is both assumed as well as genuinely difficult. This is no small cost we are asked to pay for the sake of Christ. It is real. It is weighty. It is heavy. When Jesus says we will be persecuted, we will have evil things spoken against us, he's not speaking of of a light matter. He's speaking of something very, very serious. And so any one of us who consider coming to Christ, any individual who considers putting their faith in Christ, must understand this weighty realization. And as many of us know, that, that one realization, that one promise, is enough to drive many people away. That cost just seems too great in the minds of many individuals. And yet as we continue and look back at Matthew chapter 5, we understand that as weighty, as difficult as that understanding of persecution is, the far more difficult thing to understand, and really the the much greater burden, the, the far weightier matter, is not just the reality of persecution, but it's in this expectation, it's in the command to respond like Christ, to respond in the way that Jesus commands. Look back again if you have turned away in Matthew chapter 5. I'll again begin in verse 10 and read through the response that Jesus commands. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. We'll stop there. The typical assumption for most of us, I think when it comes to how we ought to respond to criticism, really never goes any further than that old childhood adage of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We assume our calling oftentimes is just to not allow something to get under our skin. We assume the call of the righteous individual is to receive persecution, to receive an attack on ourselves, and just be willing to shrug it off. For most of us, that calling by itself would be enough of a challenge and is indeed enough of a challenge for us to fulfill. For naturally, our go-to response to any critique, but particularly to persecution against our faith, is to ball up our fists. When people attack us as Christians, we want to fight. You see this reality and you see this response throughout Scripture when, when men and women of God, understanding what's at stake, respond in a somewhat wrong and and short-sighted manner. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 9, we read of this account. In Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51, we read, When the days were approaching for for his, that is Jesus' ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned to them and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village 
right? The disciples, as they enter into this village, and as they see the way that people respond to Christ, that is, as they see people refuse to, to be hospitable to Christ, as they see them refuse to, to give Christ the due, the, the, the honor that is due his name, the disciples are, are rightly angered. They're rightly offended because they understand this is, this is the king of all creation. This is the Messiah. How dare you treat him like this? And so the response is, Jesus, you want us to call fire down on him? Right now, this seems pretty extreme, of course, to most of us. But why would the disciples think this is a reasonable response? Because it happens in the Bible. The disciples just want to do that which God allowed other prophets to do before them. You see this famous example, of course, in the life of Elijah, where, where the prophet Elijah is used in this powerful way where, where God uses him to mock these false gods that, that the people of Israel have fallen into. And in the midst of mocking those false gods, you see Elijah being able to call fire down from heaven and, and consume the sacrifice. And other examples in the, in the Old Testament you have of, of this similar power. And so the disciples are not entirely unbiblical in their response. They, they just want to do that which they think these people deserve. They feel the scorn of humanity and they want to respond in a way that, that reflects a similar level of scorn, a, a similar level of anger. And yet, of course, Jesus rebukes them and he points out that this is not his, his choice, this is not their calling, and instead they continue to move on towards Jerusalem. Now, my assumption is most of us probably don't have the same desire when, when someone might reject us for our faith. Right? Your immediate prayer probably is not, not, God, would you like me to call fire down upon this individual for making fun of me for my Christianity? I hope that's not all of our response. But many of us as Christians, myself included, reflect a, a similar short-sighted understanding of persecution in the midst of it happening. For as we are rejected for our faith, as we see the world make fun of us in popular culture, as we receive rebuke at the workplace, or as we know we are being gossiped about amongst friends because of our faith, we are rightfully offended. For we recognize that ultimately the rejection is not just of us, it's the rejection of Christ. And so as Christians, we, we are right in our offense. We are right to, to see their actions as sin. And to a certain extent, we are right in understanding that that sin deserves justice. It deserves retribution. And ultimately, if a person remains in their sin, they will be judged. But when we respond to our persecution by balling up our fists, by harboring this ill will, this hatred of the world around us, we are responding in the same way that the disciples responded in Luke chapter 9. And we are failing both to properly understand our own calling, that is this calling to, to embrace persecution, and we're also failing to, to understand the way that, that we ought to view the world around us. We as Christians are wrong in how shocked we often are when we are persecuted. We as Christians are being a bit naive when we are so astonished that the world thinks we are so foolish. This shouldn't surprise us. Of course the world thinks you are foolish. You believe that a man was buried in the ground and rose again from the dead. We believe something that is utterly foolish in the, uh, the, the mindset of the world. Of course the world thinks our gospel is offensive, for, for we are preaching again of the reality of hell and, and, and the fact that we all deserve God's wrath, we all deserve God's judgment. And so we ought to expect that the world will continually respond to us in rebuke. We ought to expect that the world will despise us for this. 
For they are simply doing that which comes naturally to them. They are simply operating under this belief that we are misguided. We have been brainwashed by a cult-like faith. And so while we desire their judgment, and while we desire to see immediate justice, this simply is not the promise of God. This is not the, the teachings of Christ. And as we look back to Matthew chapter 5, our calling is not to just ball up our fists, and our calling is not even to, to simply pick up our things and move on. Our calling is what? According to verse 11. Right? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We are told that in response to this, we are to rejoice. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Your response to this real suffering, your response to this genuine struggle is not just this stoic ignorance. It's not just this insistence of saying, okay, well, I'll move on. It is this proactive acceptance and rejoicing over what is happening to you. Now, again, at first glance, this command almost seems laughable. It seems ridiculous, does it not? For Jesus to use the words that he does, for Jesus to, to, to bluntly describe this event and say how people will say all sorts of lies against us, how they will persecute you, how they will insult you. It would no doubt seem offensive to, to so many of those believers who soon after the ascension of Christ would experience very real suffering. It would no doubt naturally seem offensive to a Stephen who in the midst of being stoned and murdered has said, hey, don't worry, Stephen. Just rejoice about it. Be glad. It seems offensive to any of us that in the midst of being insulted for our faith, we are told to be glad that it's happening to us. And many of us as Christians are tempted then to assume that Jesus is speaking in some hyperbolic fashion, that, that surely this again is just some short saying that, that can't possibly be true. And yet, when you look at the language of Jesus, and even when you look at how the disciples responded later on in the book of Acts, you see that, that Jesus' commands could not be any more clear. When Jesus says, be glad, when Jesus says, rejoice, he is not exaggerating. He is literally commanding us to be thankful for what's happening. And the command and the expectation is literally to respond with thanksgiving. In case we are prone to doubt this, you just have to look again to the way the disciples themselves responded in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, of course, throughout the book of Acts, the, the disciples go throughout all sorts of horrific persecutions. In Acts chapter 5, we have one of the many examples of this where certain apostles are, are imprisoned, they are beaten. They are put through a great deal of struggle, a great deal of suffering. But read their response in, in verse 40, verses 40 through 42 of Acts chapter 5. So after receiving advice from an individual of how they ought to judge these apostles, we read that these Jewish persecutors took their advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. They beat them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The disciples clearly did not take Jesus' words as, as a hyperbolic command. They understood Jesus was commanding them to rejoice 
And in obedience to that command, what do they do? They, they rejoice. They walk out of being beaten and imprisoned, and they rejoice. They're overjoyed. And shockingly, this is not the only example in the book of Acts of this sort of response. You have the disciples do this time and time again, responding by, by rejoicing, by being glad in that moment. You see other believers do a similar thing. And many of us in response to that rejoicing, many of us in response to passages like Acts chapter 5 and the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12, again, might feel weighed down by this expectation. And and that feeling of being weighed down is initially the right response. For if Jesus simply said, when people persecute you, when you are beaten, when you are persecuted, when people lie about you on my behalf, rejoice. If Jesus stopped there, that command would be far too much for any one of us to bear. There's no way that any one of us would have the power in and of ourselves to simply pick ourselves up and obey this command perfectly. And yet, of course, we understand that, that while that is true, And while this command of Jesus Christ is incredibly weighty in its nature, that is not where Jesus stops speaking. For Jesus, understanding this weight, further says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad. For what? For your reward in heaven is great. From the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This last phrase, this, this last promise of our reward is the key to understanding and to obeying so many of the words and really all the commands that Jesus Christ offers throughout these Beatitudes. If we don't embrace, if we don't understand verse 12 of Matthew chapter 5, we inevitably end up relying on ourselves for our own obedience and we will fail miserably. We will fall quickly under the weight and the expectations that God lays upon us. But it's when we read verse 12 that we understand that our expectation to suffer for Christ and our command to respond like Christ, that is to count all of this as joy, is only possible and is made possible when we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. When we understand that is where everything is to be found. For as Jesus hints at and and speaks of throughout this passage when he says things like, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, He's reminding us that our rejoicing and our gladness is not rooted in the the sheer experience of suffering, but it's rooted in what our suffering, what our persecution confirms about the world around us, confirms about Christ, confirms about who we are as individuals. First and foremost, when we are persecuted, we must remember that this is confirming Christ's teaching as As strange as it might sound, we ought to take comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ's promise of persecution is being fulfilled every single day throughout the world. Again, Jesus promised his disciples of this suffering in John chapter 15. He he told us, if the world hated me, it will hate you as well. Now, some of us might not take a lot of comfort in knowing that when people make fun of you because you're a Christian, that, well, good news is Jesus Christ's teachings are being confirmed, but, but this is an essential part of the picture. For if the world didn't hate us, if the world didn't despise the gospel, there would be good reason to doubt the teachings of Christ. There would be good reason to question just 
how much integrity and how much truth stood behind the regular teachings of Jesus Christ. So many people in our world today, or at least in our culture today, claim that Christianity is really just the same as every other religion. Many people view our faith, view our teachings, as the same as as any other religion in which people are just trying to to get rich quick, people are just trying to succeed, people are just trying to find happiness in this life and life to come. That is the common critique people have against Christianity. And if not for the presence and the promise of things like suffering, I think a lot of those people would have good reason to be critical. For if Jesus Christ just came along saying, hey, if you follow me, you'll get rich. If you follow me, life will be great. If you follow me, all of your problems will be solved. Then Jesus would have sounded like pretty much every other religious teacher. But Jesus doesn't say that. And the apostles don't say that themselves. Jesus comes along and says, no, I offer you eternal life, but understand there's a high cost to this. You will be persecuted. You will be hated. If a man does not give up his life for me, he's not my disciple. Christianity is exceptionally different in this promise of suffering. And so while it might not seem initially comforting, when we are persecuted, when we suffer, we ought to take comfort in the fact that that our attention is being driven back to the promise of Christ and that Christ's teachings are being confirmed time and time again. Beyond that promise and beyond that confirmation, of course, as we fix our eyes on Christ and as we consider these words of, of Jesus in Matthew 5, we understand that the persecution we suffer under also confirms our identity. Our identity in Jesus Christ. For again, Jesus says of this persecution that it occurs because of him. People speak falsely against us because of Jesus Christ. People do this against us in the same way they've always done to all of God's people. When we are persecuted then, we are to take comfort in the fact that we are joining in the long line of individuals who, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of God, have suffered tremendously. Jesus speaks of, of two groups or, or two people that we're identified with in this passage. One of those is the last, the last group in the last half of chapter 12 where he says in the same way, or verse 12, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We take comfort as believers because when we are persecuted, We are in the eyes of God, in essence, doing exactly that which the prophets did and suffering that which the prophets suffered. And so as as unbelievable as that might initially sound, when we suffer, we are no different than Jeremiah. We are like an Amos. We are like an an Isaiah. We are like these mighty men of faith in the Old Testament who we praise and who we see as great heroes. We are counted in a very similar fashion to all of them. Our suffering is very similar to the suffering they endured. As amazing as it is to read of the faith of of someone like a Stephen in the New Testament, we as believers today can take comfort in the fact that when we suffer in the eyes of Christ, we're just joining in, in that same tradition. We are like Stephen. We are like Jeremiah. We are like these many prophets. And so we share in that, that common bond of experience. We share in that common bond of identity. But of course, even more significantly than that, than our identification with the prophets, is that identification with Jesus Christ. Again, looking back to Acts chapter 5, the key to their rejoicing, in case you missed it the first time, in Acts chapter 5, the key to the rejoicing is seen In verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
That's the key. The apostles are thrilled not because they suffered, not because they're seen as these great faithful people, but because they understand that they have been persecuted, they've been beaten because of of the close proximity the world gives between them and Jesus Christ. They celebrate because they understand when those Jews saw the apostles, they saw the same thing they saw in Jesus. They heard the same message they heard from the mouth of Jesus. And so they persecute these apostles in the same way that they persecuted and they attacked Jesus Christ. The same mentality and the same focus is seen in pretty much every passage in the New Testament in which rejoicing in the midst of suffering is spoken of. One other passage that speaks to this important reminder is 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against yourself. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The same focus is true. Take joy, rejoice in the suffering because ultimately... When people are looking to you, they're not just looking to you, they're looking to Jesus Christ. When they hear your message that is so offensive, they're not just hearing a message that's coming from your mouth, they're hearing the message of Jesus Christ. And so again, we rejoice not because of what this persecution says about us as individuals, but what it says about our faith. We rejoice because as people mock us for our faith, they are identifying us as followers of Jesus Christ. And God says there is honor in this. There is great comfort in this. Because regardless of how minimal or how great your suffering is, none of it is treated as as trivial in the eyes of God. All of it is, is a faithful act of obedience. And so we as believers, as we keep our eyes fixed upon this thing, we rejoice because Christ's teachings have been confirmed, because our identity with Jesus Christ has been confirmed. But most importantly... Because our future in Jesus Christ is confirmed. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, this is the greatest promise that Christ gives. Again, in commanding us to rejoice and be glad, the motivation Jesus offers is found there where he says, For your reward in heaven is great. If you want to know why you can rejoice in the midst of people mocking you, because you are faithful, if you can rejoice even while knowing that the world thinks you are a complete idiot, you just have to hear these words. You have to remember your future reward is still tied up in Jesus Christ. This is seen both in the present life as well as in the life to come. Eric last week talked about that that present benefit of, of, of persecution that is played out in our own sanctification. Paul speaks of, of the really validity and the value of persecution. In Romans chapter 5, when he speaks about that which is grown out of persecution and how our character gets better and better and how we become more like Christ as we are persecuted. And yet again, while that is significant, while that's encouraging, the far more encouraging thing that Jesus says here does not revolve around our present life. It speaks of our future life. It speaks of that future reward of, of glory in heaven. That is the constant reward the constant motivation that is set before the believer any time we are given these types of commands. And it is only when we keep our eyes focused upon that future reward that the present sufferings we endure become tolerable, and even more than tolerable. For in Romans chapter 8, describing this process, Paul, again someone who endured great suffering, says, 
this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longings of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the, cha- the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the hope we have, Paul says. Not that presently we might be made better, but ultimately we will experience the fulfillment of all of Christ's promises to us. We will see that glory that is promised to us, and it is in that final day that we as believers can take incredible comfort knowing that those horrible things that the world says about us, the most vicious attacks, the most disgusting of slurs that are uttered against us will will, will pale in comparison when they are exchanged for Christ's commendation for all of us. They will pale in comparison when we no longer hear the anger of the world and instead we will hear Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, telling us, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is the greatest hope we have. That is our greatest reward that we can possibly imagine, that we can possibly ever expect to enjoy. And that is the guarantee that is set out before every believer. And so as initially as as initially bizarre as this command might feel, and indeed as initially impossible as this command might seem to be at first glance, it ultimately is possible. If, and only if, after feeling the weight of it, we we place our eyes back upon the, the rock of our faith, back upon the founder of our faith. We are able to rejoice if and only if we first and foremost remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave on our behalf. If only if we remember that that was the love of Christ that was given to us on the cross. If and only if we remember that our persecution confirms his deity. It confirms his teaching. It confirms his ministry. It confirms everything that Jesus Christ promised. We rejoice if and only if we understand that this persecution confirms that we are not just simply persecuted and rejected by this world, but we are children of the almighty Savior and the almighty King of all creation. Our rejoicing stems when we fix our eyes on that Jesus Christ, when we fix our eyes on that heavenly reward, remembering that that is our future. For when our future is that bright, the darkness of this world is suddenly not that dark. It is not that difficult to bear. And so as believers, we must regularly remind ourselves that this is the hope, that this is our constant calling. For the fact is, this calling is difficult at times. In the words of Jesus, are heavy at times. When you read throughout all of Scripture, you understand that that not every believer is always able to respond to persecution by rejoicing. Those great prophets who at times responded in tremendous ways also at other times respond with, with utter despair. And stories like that of Elijah, even Jeremiah himself faces that despair. We must understand as believers then that this suffering is not ever easy to endure. But it is possible when we keep our eyes fixed where they must remain fixed. And so as believers, we must daily preach this gospel to ourselves and to one another, reminding ourselves that nothing regarding our persecution is a surprise to God. 
None of it is outside of his sovereign control, and all of it is meant for our good and meant to confirm our future life in heaven with him. And so as we close this morning, as we consider all of this, for those of you who are unbelievers, again, it's vitally important that you genuinely consider the cost that the Christ requests of you. There are many people out there who will offer this false, watered-down gospel that basically tells you, hey, put your faith in Jesus Christ and everything will be made better. But that's a lie. It's a complete lie. Having said that, however, of course, the cost of your unbelief is far greater than the cost of belief. You are a sinner in need of a Savior, and outside of putting your faith in Christ, you are destined for damnation. You are destined for hell. And so we beg you this morning to not simply look at the cost of Jesus Christ, but look at the cost that Jesus Christ paid on your behalf on the cross, and in response, place your faith in him. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us rejoice in the reward that is offered to us. Let us, of course, pray for the strength that we so desperately need, for we need strength day to day. But in the midst of praying for that strength, let us meditate moment by moment on Jesus Christ, moment by moment on his power and on his grace and on his mercy. And as we meditate on him, let us rejoice knowing what, the future li- what our future ahead of us promises.